Hi folks, welcome back to another episode of Clinical Appraisal, a show dedicated to exploring issues of measurement and methodology in nursing science and practice. This is Season 2, Episode 17, and I'm your host, Ian Lane. I'm now an acute care DNP student, but my background is that I was in a PhD program for behavioral epidemiology, where I concentrated on neuroscience and statistics, and made the switch to ground my methodological research in clinical implementation. If you like what I'm doing and have enjoyed the podcast so far, please rate and review the show on iTunes so that more people have access to it. It really does make a difference. And if you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com or visit my website at about.me forward slash Ian Lane. As always, all opinions shared on this podcast are my own and do not reflect my employer, university, or affiliates. And nothing I share on this podcast or any other constitutes or can be misconstrued as medical advice. Everything presented here is for educational purposes only. I would also like to say I am recording this on the morning of Thursday, November 26th, so I would like to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving, and I hope everyone is safe and well. Today I am going to cover a research article by Dr. Kelly DePriest et al. from Johns Hopkins, published in Nursing Outlook this year in 2020, entitled, quote, Nurse Practitioners' Workforce Outcomes Under Implementation of Full Practice Authority, end quote. Um, Nursing Outlook is sort of like our version of the New England Journal. It's one of the oldest and most prestigious journals in our field, um, and it is one of my favorite journals. Uh, I know it's a little nerdy that I have a favorite journal or series of favorite journals, but um, <clears throat> there are just some journals who... <laughs> published really solid work and, uh, you know, this is one of them. So I commend them for getting this paper published in this journal. And um, overall, I thought it was a very high quality paper. And I am grateful that it was sent to me by one of my listeners. Um, So what's the problem that these authors are trying to address in this paper? Well, we know that primary care provider shortages are, they've been a problem and they are still a problem. And these authors write that essentially this problem will continue to get worse over the next several years. And they mentioned that full practice authority legislation for states that are currently reduced or restricted practice, they might allow nurse practitioners to actually fill that shortage, that gap. Right now, as it stands, 21 states have full practice authority, and the other 29 are either reduced or restricted practice authority states. These states seem to have, according to the authors, a more difficult time retaining nurse practitioners in these areas of need. Research from other groups has shown in the past that full practice authority is associated with greater access to nurse practitioners in these underserved areas, And this being the highest in areas where NPs have their full practice authority rights granted. So there are currently 20 states that face the worst shortages of primary care providers today. And out of these 20 states, 
only four of them, so just 20% of them, have adopted full practice authority for NPs. So if it is the case that having increased full practice authority legislation increases nurse practitioners in these shortage areas, this would be a very impactful problem to solve. Workforce outcomes for nurse practitioners are not often addressed in the literature. There are some studies on this, which they present here. Um, some of them I may have to look into deeply, uh, more deeply. There is some uh, time series analysis that was done by Shu et al., which I'm interested in. Um, but it seems like there's a dearth of research in this particular area. And workforce outcomes includes things like earning potential, self-employment or practice ownership, and other insights into how or why nurse practitioners are making their labor market decisions. The belief here is that full practice authority for nurse practitioners may increase not just practice autonomy, but also things like practice ownership and geographic location and overall earnings or earning potential, all of which have some significant influence on individuals' labor market decisions. So what they wanted to find out was whether states that implemented full practice authority showed relative increases in, quote, the percentage of nurse practitioners who locate in primary care health professional shortages areas, or HPSAs, in NP self-employment and in NP's hourly earnings, unquote, compared to states that maintained their reduced or restricted practice authority during the same study period, that is. So what did they do? Let's take a turn to the methods section here. They used a retrospective survey data set to gather nationally representative information on NPs to tally together cross-sectional data into a longitudinal design called a pooled cross-sectional study. And then they analyzed these using a differences in differences regression approach to identify potentially causal factors related to the hypotheses that we mentioned, namely increased rates of self-employment, HPSA practice location, and, and earnings mainly. This might be one of the most sophisticated method sections of a nursing paper I've ever read, and I'm very impressed with it, I have to say. The survey data that they used came from the American Community Survey microdata sample, the ACS data set. This ACS data is an arm of the U.S. Census Bureau, so it has the added benefit of being as representative of the entire population of NPs as we're likely to find in primary care. They used data from only 2010 to 2018 because prior to 2010, some of the states that had changed to full practice authority were already, uh, some of the NPs rather, were already in states that had full practice authority. Um, and they wanted states that had changed in this time period, in these eight years. And what they did is they pooled the annual ACS data sets for this time, 2010 to 2018, and analyzed it longitudinally, as I say, in a pooled cross-sectional analysis design. And, you know, in some instances, a pooled cross-sectional analysis can be problematic because there may be significant changes at the individual level. You know, cross-sectional surveys are just snapshots in time. And if the parameters that you're looking at are changing wildly during this time period, 
One can imagine there being an instability in the results such that it delegitimizes the longitudinal aspect that they're trying to go for. Um, and this is not like a panel, uh, you know, pooled panel design because panels are the same people. Um, however, in a sense, even the shift here, whatever shifts exist on the ground, when one can imagine that they're stable enough in this population over this time period that this is a bit more like a legitimate longitudinal assessment. So doing a regression in this context might actually be appropriate, and I think it's going to be really interesting. So included in the population that they got, by virtue of who's considered a, quote, consensus code 3258, unquote, in the Bureau, are nurse midwives as well as nurse practitioners. However, the total number of advanced practice nurses in this group who are certified nurse midwives is actually very small. Either way, um, one thing that's important to note is that one of the limitations here for those of us who are not in primary care NP roles or primary care NP students like myself who are in acute care training programs, this has less bearing on those of us who will be in the hospital uh, setting. It's not that it couldn't apply to us under the right circumstances. It's just that this study can't be extrapolated to our situation. So that's just something to keep in mind as we move along here. The authors started out with data from 12,865 nurse practitioners in the ACS data set. They excluded 1,842 because their main job was not in a healthcare delivery setting. And then they excluded another 1,241 because they worked in states that adopted full practice authority prior to 2010, which is what I was trying to say earlier. And then this left them with a final sample of 9,782 NPs. As you can imagine, that's quite a large sample, and it's a nice representative sample of the population, being that it's uh, sampled from, the, from an arm of the Bureau data. The reason that they excluded the states who adopted full practice authority before 2010, by the way, is because of these differences and differences designs. In order to assess differences and differences, there has to be a pre-post-test arm. So this pre- and post-test, so to speak, really requires that the arm, which included the intervention, as it were, which is really the full practice authority piece here, changed at some point during the study timeline to assess whether there were changes over time as a function of the, quote, intervention, and then what the differences were compared to the controls who maintained their reduced or restricted status throughout the study period. I like that they provided us with their dependent variables specifically. Their dependent variables were nurse practitioner location in a primary care HPSA, nurse practitioner self-employment or practice ownership, and the natural log of NP's hourly earnings. For the HPSA, zip codes had to be retrieved separately from the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, and then matched to the ACS dataset, but I don't really see that being too problematic, although there is a point to come back to toward the end with respect to one important limitation here which gives me pause, but I don't think that it's, uh, we'll come back to it. Um, they also specified their covariates, which I think is helpful. They are 
age and age squared to control for differences in work experience and birth cohort. I'm not so sure how good of a proxy age is for work experience per se, but I will let that go for now. Um, They included sex, race, Hispanic ethnicity, and immigration status to the U.S., metropolitan area status, state-level NPs per capita in 2010, state-level healthcare providers per capita in 2010, and they included state-level RNs with master's degrees per capita in 2010. Now let's take a look at what they did in terms of analyses. So as I say, this is it has to be one of the most sophisticated analysis sections of a nursing research paper I have ever read. And partly it's a function of the complexity of the questions because it's almost like a social, ecological, or economic study, which are always incredibly complex. I imagine they may have had some assistance from an econometrist or an epidemiologist from Hopkins for some of this, or perhaps they're just especially savvy themselves, but either way, I'm impressed. As I mentioned, they used a differences in differences approach. This is the second one of these, you'll remember, that we've seen on the podcast in the last month. There was another one on masks from Dr. Monica Gandhi from um, California. These designs are interesting because it's a bit like a natural observational study with a comparator group, which can sort of make some inferences which seem a bit like deriving causal relationships as one would do from running a randomized controlled trial. This is usually from problems which an RCT is not feasible for some reason, exactly like the situation we've just got here from naturalistic data from the community. And the idea with the differences in differences study like this is to compare two groups over time. One is a control group for whom, in this case, they're just continuing their day-to-day work for the entire study period in a state that has maintained their reduced or restricted practice authority throughout. And this is our comparator condition. The second is the so-called experimental arm, which is the group for whom somewhere across the study period there were changes instituted in their state's practice authority, where full practice authority rights were granted, thereby reflecting an inflection point of sorts in their data. And the second arm, the intervention arm, who in a way received full practice authority during the study as sort of like the um, intervention, these data are essentially treated like pre-post data or What were the changes observed in this arm specifically? And then after this, we would assess the controls and then we'd compare the two as though they were from the same trial. And that's where the differences come from. We have first the differences between nurse practitioners who practice in states whose full practice authority legislation was granted during the study period before and after the instantiation of those changes. And then the differences between those differences and the ones from the comparator group whose states remain the same. So that's where the differences and differences comes from. They also used logistic regression for the binary outcomes. These are outcomes who can either be true or false, zeros or ones, basically. Something either happened or it didn't. There's no gradient there. And then they used OLS regression, which is ordinary least squares, which is a simplistic linear regression model for the log earnings, which are pretty straightforward. What they added, which I really appreciated, however, is a binary indicator for the nurse practitioners practicing in states that implemented full practice authority at some time during the study period, and then a binary indicator for the year prior to the FBA being instituted. To that 
because what they're trying to do is account for any anticipated modifications in workforce outcomes in these nurse practitioners so that readers who are savvy and astute can't say, well, what if the changes you're seeing here are really just due to nurse practitioners knowing that this is coming down the pike and they're preparing for it by, say, modifying their work schedule for self-employment in the coming weeks or months or something like that. The next piece is the kind of thing people write to me and say makes them want to cry. And then (laughs) it makes them very upset when they read research articles because it's it's complicated and I totally understand this. So I'm going to read this chunk aloud to you. Quote, a double selection covariate control function modeling approach was used to select a sparse covariate specification from a flexible specification that included all the listed covariates and their two-way interactions. Under this approach, a machine learning technique called lasso is used to select a sparse model specification using the identified covariates. The lasso regressions were adjusted for a yearly trend the year before full practice authority was implemented, whether the state had implemented full practice authority by 2018, NPs per capita in 2010, and interaction between dot, dot, dot. And then they go on to list a bunch of their covariates and adjustments to the regression model. It would be a podcast unto itself to go through all this in the detail it would take to get you to understand precisely what's happening here. So let me just point you to somewhere else for those of you who are interested. If you want to learn more about this sort of thing, check out a paper by Koch, Vock, and Wolfson published in the Journal of Biometrics in 2018, which is another phenomenal journal that if you're interested in biostatistics, I would recommend, called Covariate Selection with Group Lasso and Doubly Robust Estimation of Causal Effects. There are other papers cited in that article which are helpful as well. Basically, it's just a starting point from which to do a deeper dive of sorts if you're interested in that sort of rabbit hole. For those interested, however, LASSO stands for Least Absolute Shrinkage and Selection Operator, which I realize doesn't help you even a little bit, but it's a machine learning statistical approach to select variables and regularize data to enhance predictive accuracy of those data. I know it's mostly intended for forecasting, though, as compared with inference, But I don't know enough about this yet to really comment deeply. I'd have to do a deeper dive myself into Lasso to be able to really comment sufficiently competently on that here. They go on, the authors, to make a statement after which I don't... I I read it and I didn't fully understand what they meant by this. I think I may have some idea. They say, quote... All models were weighted using the ACS sampling weights to account for the ACS survey design features. Remember, ACS is that American Community Survey. I take this to mean that the ACS survey applies specific sampling weights in the original design, and so they were forced to apply these to this data set as well. But they don't really go on to describe this more fully, so I, don't, I really can't make sense of what that means precisely, because I've never actually seen the original ACS microdata set before. Um, Moving on, for each outcome regression, they derived their inferences based on the, quote, estimated coefficient of a binary indicator that equaled one in states and years during which full practice authority was in effect, and zero otherwise, controlling for the average difference in outcomes for NPs between states that did and did not implement full practice authority, end quote. This just reflects what I mentioned earlier about the use 
of logistic regression for inferences and how it's based in a binary methodology here. Their alpha level, their statistical significance rather, was set at 0.05 using a two-sided test, which makes good sense because they didn't really know if the effect of full practice authority implementation was going to improve or worsen their dependent variables. Of course, they had their suspicions, but they couldn't know for sure, so I appreciate this. Now let's talk about what they found. They found no uh, statistically significant pre-post relationship with full practice authority implementation in the unadjusted mean comparisons for HPSA location, self-employment, or hourly earnings. What they did is they just didn't adjust for any of the covariates they intended to look at. And as I mentioned, they found no significant relationship between any of those Uh, dependent variables and full practice authority implementation on its own. They go on to do some of these other adjustments, however, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, They did find, though, that the mean log earnings increased by 2.6% after uh, full, full practice authority implementation as compared with before the implementation of full practice authority, which was statistically significant with a p value of 0.037. Earnings were also 8% higher on average. So NPs before were making $48.45 per hour, and then afterward were making 52.29. So that was the 8% increase. In the differences in differences adjusted model, full practice authority implementation was correlated with an increased probability of residing in an, an HPSA, And this was statistically significant with an adjusted odds ratio of 1.94. This means that there is essentially an average of an almost twofold greater probability of an NP residing in an HPSA under the full practice practice authority implementation model compared to the reduced or restricted practice authority model. The only gripe I have about that, however, is that the 95% confidence interval, while truly significant, ranged from 1.05 to 3.61, which means the true point estimate lies somewhere between there being just a 5% increased chance of residing in an HPSA and an almost fourfold increased probability. This is a really large range. Either way, though, it was statistically significant. My only question would be whether a 5% increased chance would be clinically meaningful if that's where the true point estimate actually lied, or how much that would actually affect the healthcare system compared to our presumed twofold greater chance. Just something to think about. This model was from all employed NPs, however. In the model including only full-time employed NPs, the adjusted odds ratio of residing in an HPSA was still about 2.34, but this time it had a range of 1.14 to 4.83, which, while still a very large range, is about 20% higher than for the all-NPs group, and 8% higher on the low end, which means that we, you know, this does increase my particular confidence for the clinical importance of this finding. Importantly, there seemed to be no statistically significant association between full practice authority and log earnings for NPs at any time point in this study, which I find fascinating. Um, Some of the limitations that the authors address, which I think are important, 
Um, I'm only going to speak to one of them. There was one significant limitation presented. They mentioned others, but I'm not as concerned about them personally, Um, which was that they could have, quote, overestimated the influence of full practice authority on nurse practitioners practicing in HPSAs by misattributing NPs to shortage area zip codes, end quote, because they were not able to link people to HPSA at the zip code level precisely, because these data are not available in the ACS data set. Um, Because they had to use the HRSA data to match these, they could have overestimated it because the ACS data set covers larger regions than the zip code region, and therefore these data could be compromised. So let's talk a little bit about the author's conclusions of the study. They conclude, quote, Full practice, full practice authority laws may help states address local area shortages of primary care providers, end quote. They are very specific and very careful in writing this, and I agree with them. They go on to say, quote, Policy leaders should further examine economic barriers to independence practice and practice ownership by NPs and the potential need for additional policy changes above and beyond full practice authority only, including the need for clearer regulatory guidance, yes, increased access to business loans and insurance, and postgraduate training and professional mentorship opportunities, end quote. Yes, yes, and yes. My overarching thoughts are twofold after reading this study. First, I agree wholeheartedly with the author's conclusions that this is a problem significantly worth further attention. And I do think they did an absolutely fabulous job with this report. I'm concerned about the possibility of the inflated HPSA uh, residence results, given the range of the adjusted odds ratio being so large and the lower bound just being 5%. And I can't help but wonder if this were further adjusted for the larger region covered in the ACS data set compared to the zip code level geography, if these would still be statistically significant or meaningful, clinically meaningful. Um, The issue, of course, for me is that this was pretty much their primary finding. Um, The other findings were non-significant, and so I didn't really talk about those. That's not to say they're not practically important. If nothing else, I think this study is a particularly important one for highlighting and indicating where there may be some substantial things for policymakers to continue to look at. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please rate it five stars on iTunes and share this channel with any friends in healthcare. If you'd like to ask me a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. Finally, I do this show because it helps me learn and not because I want to pretend to be the expert on these topics. My objective is simply to grow as a clinician researcher and to promote this content for other like-minded people. If I ever review your paper on this podcast and you would like to speak about it with me, please send me a note and I would love to have you on. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you'll join me again next time.